0: Uh, some of you are aware that I had knee surgery over the summer, and I'm still recuperating. And uh, I too am dealing with loss of mobility and, and loss of uh, agility, and uh, you know, with a with a knee that isn't uh, optimally functioning, and being frustrated by that. And, and but all of us have to deal with those things, and all of us at some point have to bow to to God and His sovereignty, and His provision, and His will. Uh, We may not understand why these things are in our life, but nonetheless, they are. And and we sang that song earlier, that God reigns. That ultimately is our salvation. He reigns. He's absolutely sovereign over every detail. And though we let go of precious people, relationships, things, health, we hold on to them, but, but it's, it's almost like God prized them from our hands in one sense. And uh, we fight hard, don't we? And it's just, it's just more and more of, of us learning to be um, just trusting of him, surrendered to him. Life, life can be difficult. Life can be difficult. But we have a sovereign God who reigns over every detail of our life. And that is our saving grace and saving hope. We're not left without that. Isn't that glorious? In this text, uh, I want to just finish what we started last week in terms of talking about the steps to renewal. Last week I told you there were five steps. I reduced them to three. Aren't you glad? Let's keep it simpler. There's only three steps to renewal. And there really are. And it's... There's nothing new here for us, necessarily, but it's, again, it's another opportunity to see these principles in evidence in the Old Testament in in a way maybe we hadn't seen them before, Uh, and we see God's redeeming grace evidenced again and again and again. I think, again, as I shared with you last week, one one of the greatest needs for people to know is that... They can have a new beginning. People can have a new start, a second chance, if you will. And in this case, certainly with God, all of us, no matter how terrible our sin may have been, no matter how terrible the shame of it has been in our life, or how horrible our failures may have been, uh, how horrible our devastations, how tragic our sufferings, our pain... No matter how helpless or hopeless our situation may seem, no matter what the problem, no matter what the trial, the good news is that we can have a new beginning. And for one marvelous, simple reason, and that is that God loves us and cares for us. That may boggle our minds. God, why do you? I am such a wretch. I am so unfaithful. I am... So, I, I, I want to be faithful, but I failed. Anybody, can anybody relate to what I'm just saying? And we just look at ourselves and we say, I'm such a wretch. But God, you are so faithful. Yes, you're so faithful. I'm reminded of Paul's statement in Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 4, I think it is, where uh, he reminds the church at Rome, he says, uh, have you forgotten that it was God's kindness that led you to repentance? That verse is just such a substantial reality. God's kindness led us to repentance. We have have new opportunities every morning, every day. Jeremiah, the prophet, says that God's mercies are new every morning. They don't run out. You don't exhaust them. He has an inexhaustible supply of grace and mercy. And he extends that to us every day. This... I believe, is a subject that offers the greatest hope, the greatest hope to all people. I was talking to a member of our congregation this morning, earlier, about um, taking Pastor Steve's class on evangelism and going out for the very first time and witnessing, uh, just street witnessing, just practicing what they're learning in uh, this person was sharing with me that uh, the rejection is unbelievable, and people just said, I don't care. They spit on you. They, every, every despicable kind of a thing. And here you're offering them hope in life. And you see, you see how tragic it is. And, and if the truth be known, many of us were in that place at one point, weren't we? If someone were to come to us and say, Get away from me, leave me alone, I don't want to hear that. We're convicted. John says or, uh, that men love the darkness and yet we persevere because we know we have the greatest news. There isn't a single one of us here this morning that it, as we look back over our life, they're, they're, they're in a relationship or, or life situation that uh, has, has somehow been failed or, or we've, we've messed it up in some sense that we'd like to, if it were possible, to have it back again, to do over again. Anybody like a do-over? <laughs> yeah. If I could just have that back, I, could, I, I, would, I would do it better. I know better now. I know what to do, and I didn't know then. And, and it, it seems like such a waste and such a tragedy. All of us would like a second chance. God gives us that every day. New opportunities. We failed yesterday. We can come back. The temptation is, in, in the face of our failure, in the face of uh, our suffering, in the face of the hopeless situation, whatever our sin and shame, the temptation is, is to fade away. I'm too embarrassed. I'm too ashamed. I, I can't face people. I, I don't want to come. I, and yet God says, what? Come. Come. Again, we can learn from the renewal of the covenant between God and his people, Israel. We can learn three simple steps to renewal in our own lives. If you found yourself fading away, if you found yourself under heavy burdens and trials, if you found yourself uh, being tempted to giving up, if your life is experiencing things that you don't have an answer for, you're confused, if your past is, continues to arise and haunt you, if you feel like you need therapy, I have the therapy for you this morning. It's all written in this book. There's three steps. We talked about the first two last week. The first one you find in the first four verses of chapter 34. God called Moses up on the mountain. He called him to come up to the top of the mountain And he's going to give him all of the instructions all over again and uh, write on the new tablets that Moses carves out of stone that Moses broke. (laughs) Remember, God pointed that out to him. The the tablets, you broke. So the first step to renewal in a person's life is simply to respond to God's call. To respond. Yes. 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 It's like calling our kids for dinner. Dinner's ready. Come on. We want the kids to respond, right? Now, remember, Moses is the mediator between Israel and God. So when God calls Moses up on the mountain, he is, in effect, also calling Israel back into relationship. Marvelous picture. The second step we find in verses 5 through 9, that is to seek the Lord in all of his fullness. It's in those verses we read where God reveals himself. Moses said to God, I want to see your glory. God said, no man can see me and live, but I'll put you up here in the rock and I'll pass by. You'll see my backside. And as God passed by Moses, and again, this is all anthropomorphic language, Recall. As he passed by Moses, God declared his name and then explained his name by defining all those characteristics of his very nature, his character. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, showing love and forgiveness to thousands and so he's revealed himself most intimately to Moses and he reveals himself most intimately to us also in this book called the Bible. That's why we're reading it. And so it's not enough that we respond to his call. We say, yes, Lord, but that we seek him, seek to know him. Uh, this was Paul's testimony, wasn't it? In the, in the third chapter of Philippians, he says, I want to know Christ. Well, you would think that Paul, Paul, the apostle, knew Christ. But the implication is, I want to know him. I want to know him more. And so you and I, as, as, as well as we think we know God, you cannot exhaust him, and you cannot exhaust the knowledge of him. You cannot even exhaust the knowledge of the relationship with him. Isn't it marvelous? Almost after 30 years of being married to my wife, I'm still learning things about her. She just surprised me the other day with some new little delightful thing about characteristic of her. I'm not going to tell you what it was. (laughs) But we can learn more and more and more about the Lord. And again, I'm hearing testimonies of a number of you who are for the very first time in your life, reading through the Bible on a regular schedule basis and, and God has just come into life to you in new ways. Your relationship is, is, is being refreshed and strengthened and expanded, enlarged, because you're seeking Him, seeking to know Him in all of His fullness. God says, when you, when you seek me, you will find me. When you seek me, you'll find me. When you seek me with all your heart. Because he wants to be sought out. He wants us to hunger for him. In any relationship, it's like that. Um, when you're courting, you know, the, 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 the courteur and the courtee. Can I use that language? Courteur, is that right? Well, you, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. Well, the, the courtee longs to be sought out. And in a sense, we, we court God, but really he does that for us too, doesn't he? So the second step, one is we, re, we respond to his call. Know that he calls us. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened. Not enough just to come, we also must seek him in all of his fullness. Seek to know him. The third step in this process of renewal, in this process of starting over, is to make a renewed commitment simply to God to obey him. Now, people, sometimes the word obey and obedience, some people, as they process it through their interpretive grid, uh, they hear legalism. No, no, no. Obedience, very simply, is do, do what is right, what's going to produce a, a godly, healthy life. And it has to be in this order. Uh, A lot of times people will try to do what God wants and obey God when they haven't really sought him to know him. And when you seek out God to know him and to to enjoy the relationship with him, obedience is not a grievous thing. Obedience then becomes the natural outworking of the relationship. It's like children who know and love and honor their parents, and their, their parents make a terrific investment in the lives of the kids, and there's, a, there's this bond, there's this loyalty, and the kids respond to that attention, and the kids want to know more. The more the parent reveals to the child, the child wants to know more. Tell me more. My son would always want me to, and he still does, he wants me to tell him about my life and growing up. and, and all he, he, We have a terrific bond together, which makes it a, a, a marvelous platform now for him and for our kids to then want to do the things that we instruct them in. The Bible says, train up a child the way he should go, and when he's old he won't depart from it. God is training us up in the way that we should go. So don't think and look at obedience as something that is grievous, it's legalistic, it's it's any of that. It's simply the natural outworking of a relationship where we honor God, we love God, and we demonstrate that by how we live our life. Now I want you to notice something in verses 10 through 26. Just read these chapters with me. We have a Young child that's wandering the aisles here. Does anybody notice this? Oh, there we go. Someone's found him. He's lost, but now he's found. Yes. Okay. Just read with me, beginning at verse 10. Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you, and I was speaking to Moses, I'm making a covenant with you Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you, and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, And those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods. They will lead your sons to do the same. Do not make cast idols. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib. And for that month you uh, came out of Egypt. The first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest you must rest. Celebrate the Feast of Weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your men are to appear before the Sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory, and no one will covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast, and do not let any of the sacrifice from the Passover feast remain until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. When the Lord said to Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Note the amazing love of God. The people had committed a terrible, terrible sin. And their sin was, in that idolatry, that they simply rejected God, replaced God uh, for an idol, repudiated the God who loved them and had delivered them, and attributed all that to to this idol. They had broken his commandments. In the face of all of that, God still turns from his anger God still, again, takes the initiative and he reaches out in this text to renew the covenant between himself and his people. God takes the initiative in everything. He always takes the initiative. Every single, every single time. We love him, John says, because he first loved us. Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. God initiated creation. God made man in his own image. God desired to have kids, if you will. God always takes the initiative. And here again, we see him taking the initiative, reaching out to renew the covenant between himself and the people, seeking again to reestablish that relationship. Now I want you to notice, in doing such, that God has a part, we have a part. In every relationship, there's each partner in the relationship has responsibilities. Isn't that true? Let's look at God's responsibilities. The things that God does in terms of renewing the relationship. In verse 10, he promised to do great works. Great wonders, great miracles for his people. Why? simply as a witness to God's mighty power to save and to deliver. All the other nations would witness what God does for them. They would be jealous, they would be envious, and presumably they would be attracted to God also. He's promised to do great works. He's promised to do great works in our lives, hasn't he? Miraculous things. First and foremost is, obviously, salvation being regenerated. We should never, ever, ever, ever take that for granted Among all the things that God could do for me, he's done the greatest already, hasn't he? He saved me, rescued me from the domain of darkness, transferred me to the kingdom of his Son, whom he loves. He sealed me with his Spirit. He keeps on interceding for me. He miraculously delivers me from things that I know not of. My prayer is always, God, thank you for the things you do that I know about and also thank you for the things you do that I don't know about, for how you save me and deliver me, working your miraculous power in my life. He promised to do great works for them. Secondly, he, in verse 11, he wants obedience. He demands obedience. He is the only living and true God. He is the sovereign Lord of all of creation, the entire universe, everything. And as such, he has the right to demand obedience. Now, it's just not arbitrary. It's not obedience just for the sake of obedience. It has a purpose. He has a designed order. He's he's created a certain order. And he said, this is the way, walk in it. He gave his law. His law really was meant to give life to his people. He says, "If if you obey my commands, you'll be blessed. If you disobey them, you're going to be cursed. We tell our kids, I love you so much. I'm telling you, this is how you should go do thee, walk in this way. In essence, obey what I'm telling you. In the garden, it was that way. When God created the garden, he he put the first man, the first woman in the garden. His words were to them a command. There's this one tree, don't eat of that tree. He told them the consequences if they would eat of the tree. The consequences that they would, what? Die. They would suffer terrific loss. And the same principle holds true. God does demand obedience. He's promised to do great wonders, promised to do great miracles in their midst, but he wants them to obey him. And thirdly, he promised in verse 11 again to defeat the enemies of his people, to defeat their enemies. He, dri- he promised to drive out all the inhabitants of the promised land, The time has come. The iniquity of the Amorite is full. It's been 400 years. No enemy would be allowed to stop the Israelites from reaching the land of Canaan. Anyone, any nation, any people who would stand against God's people, who would try to entice them, who would try to ensnare them, enslave them, destroy them, defeat them, They themselves would be destroyed. They themselves would be defeated. God promised to go before them and remove all their enemies. Isn't that marvelous? We have the same great hope for us today. We have terrific victory over our very real enemies. And we have that victory through Jesus Christ. We have a number of enemies that the New Testament identifies for us. First of all, Jesus himself has conquered The enemy of sin for us. Sin is a very real great enemy, isn't it? We're slaves to sin, Paul says. But through Christ, we've been delivered from the power of sin. We have been, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in Paul's great apology uh, for the uh, resurrection, he says in verse 56 the sting of death is sin. But he's broken the power of sin. And that would lead to the fact that uh, uh, death no longer has power of us either. Romans chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Paul writes this. The death, that he, meaning Christ, died. He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way... Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. How can I count myself dead to sin, but alive to God? Because Jesus has conquered the power of sin. He's conquered sin. One of my great enemies in this life. We were slaves to it. We couldn't free ourselves. We had to be set free. Somebody had to break the power of sin, and that person was Jesus. And so just as God had promised the Israelites that he would drive out their enemies, he has conquered that great enemy but not only that he's conquered the enemy of death for us also again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 paul writes where o death is your victory where o death is your sting he's broken the power of sin he's broken the power of death death is no longer our enemy death no longer really when you think about it is no longer a terrifying prospect it really is the portal to entrance into eternal life, into the realization. We already possess eternal life, but it's a portal of entry into the realization of that in eternity. It may not be our favorite thing to go through the process of dying, but death no longer holds terror for us. We are confident, confident. And it's how wonderful it is, and and I've presided at the bedside of many a saint who died uh, that the, just so many, a great majority, have passed with such peace. And it's just the grace of God that enables us to do that. And when you've seen as much of it as I have, you're confident. And, and, you know, when our time comes, I know that God's grace will be sufficient to carry me across the bar, if you will. And so he's conquered the enemy of death. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, the prophet says he swallowed up death forever. Death is no longer uh, our enemy. He's conquered it. He's defeated the enemy of our soul, the very enemy of our soul, Satan himself. Again, in uh, John's gospel, chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus writes, uh, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Satan has held sway in the lives of so many people for so long. And Jesus conquers him. Jesus defeats him. Jesus drives him out. Lest you think that Satan is not a real person, uh, he is. He is. And he is the very enemy of our soul. The writer to Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. How many are you are glad to know that he's been defeated? Sin, death, the devil has been defeated. Jesus has done that. Our enemies have been defeated. In First John chapter 3, John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hallelujah to that. But now that Jesus has conquered the world for the believer. The world is an enemy, too. We're no longer of this world. We're in it, but we're no longer of it. We are, to use Peter's words, we are pilgrims, we are sojourners, we're passing through. This is no longer our home. We have a home that yet awaits us. Isn't that true? Again, in John's Gospel, chapter 16, uh, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. How many have noted that? <laughs> but take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. In other words, this isn't all there is anymore. Yeah, we're going to have trouble, but we have a hope that transcends this world and transcends the trouble that we're going to experience in this life. This life is a blip, if you will, on the radar, if I can use that expression. It's just a, it's just a passing season for us. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, John writes, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. God empowers us that that we are able to actually overcome the world, overcome the difficulties, the trials, the temptations that the world puts in our place. For this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. It's our faith that gives us this victory, the fact that we believe. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The world can get you down, can't it? You read the newspapers, you watch the news, you listen to all the bad news, you listen to, you see all of the uh, the evil in the world. It can get you down. You can be depressed. I've talked to people. You've talked to people sure who said, you know, I don't want to have I don't want to have any children. I want to bring children into this terrible world. I want to populate this world with Christians who can bring more good news. We have a mandate, we have a, we have a cultural mandate given to us back in Genesis, to subdue the earth and to rule, to, to govern the created order, and yet to also influence culture. And we do that by training up, by raising up, by bringing people into the kingdom and teaching them and so that the world does not hold sway as it once did. Lastly, Jesus has conquered every enemy. Every enemy, no matter how fierce or terrible, for the believer. Listen to these marvelous words from the Apostle Paul in the great 8th chapter of the book of Romans. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, we are more than... He has defeated every enemy, everything that could possibly pose itself as an adversary to our life, to tear us down, to defeat us. Christ has already defeated. And in Him, because we are believers, we're in Him, we're in an intimate, inseparable union to Him. In Him, we are more than conquerors. How can you be more than a conqueror? But that's what He tells us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has conquered every single enemy, no matter how fierce, no matter how terrible for the believer. That's God's part. God has done his part. Much as Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, God has done his part. Now, we have a part. Israel had a part. We have a part in this renewing of this covenant or this renewal of a relationship. In every relationship, relationships have their high points and their low points, don't they? Sometimes our devotion wanes a little bit, doesn't it? Sometimes we get distracted and, and, and the relationship, from our perspective, needs renewal. Isn't that true? I mean, every marriage experiences these things. Every marriage, there's a season where you just, you're just kind of not there like you were before. And, and, and there's, a, there's a need for renewal. And this is where, this is where uh, Israel's part, and by extension, our part, comes in, in response to all of God's initiative. First of all, the Israelites were to live a life of Separation. They were not to be associated or tied to unbelievers, verse 12. They would be separated. Now, notice the reason. Lest they be influenced by the sinful worldly ways of the unbelievers around them. Now, you and I are in the world. Jesus has sent us out into the world. He says, be in it, but not of it. No longer do we abide by the values of this world, though they are tempting and though they are powerful. We have a whole new vision for life. We have a whole new paradigm by which we live. Isn't that true? A a, worldview, just a view of life. No longer are we the same people we used to be. We live differently. And we're in this life. Jesus said, be salt and light, make a difference. Again, it comes along, it's a fulfillment of that cultural mandate from the book of Genesis. How do you make a difference in the world? By how you live, by the language you use, by the people you influence, by reaching out to others who who have no hope, by encouragement, uh, by how you conduct your business as a Christian would, as a a person who uh, has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who is presumably guided and led by the Holy Spirit. So they were to live separate lives. Proverbs 24.1 says, Do not envy wicked men. Do not desire their company. Well, I want to hang out with those wicked guys. (laughs) Well, we used to want to do that. Got a certain amount of enjoyment and pleasure and and, um, sensation from that. Psalm 1.1 puts it this way. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. We used to do that, but no longer. Paul writes the same theme in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? We'd be in the world, we're influencing nonbelievers, we're influencing a non-believing world, but we're not to be yoked with them, not to be tied up with them, uh, because chances are we will be Forced to compromise. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world any longer. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. The world has lots to offer and uh, lots of good things, or lots of good gifts from God, but the, 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 the world philosophy, the world view, which today is a godless worldview, we don't buy into. Secondly, The people were not to worship false gods, verses 13 and 14. They were not to worship false gods. They were to allow no false gods, no false worship in their midst. In fact, they were to go, when they entered the land, they were to destroy all of the places of false worship in the land. Why? God says this. Because he is a jealous God. The word jealous is used twice in verse 14, if you noticed. And that simply emphasizes God's great love and passion for his people. He is far more jealous over the believer than a husband is over his wife. Wives, do you love to have your husbands jealous for you? Jealous for you? Yes. How much more is God jealous for us? He doesn't want us Turning to idols. He doesn't want his people or or by extension us worshiping anybody else but him. Because he's the only one that can uh, grace our lives. Idols are just absolutely dead things. In verses 15 and 16, God again emphasizes that the people were not to make any alliances. They were not to make treaties, permanent ties with unbelievers, particularly intermarriage that when they possessed the land that their sons were not to intermarry with the daughters of the people around them. Why? Because it would lead them off into idolatry. And as you continue to read the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you see that's exactly what they did. They disobeyed God. They intermarried with the women around them, and they were led off into idolatry, and that led to God's punishment of them, uh, ultimately, both the nation of Israel in the north and the tribe of Judah in the south. Verse 17, the people were to make no idols whatsoever. Uh, this is something that God stresses again and again and again. It cannot be stressed too much. They were to have nothing whatsoever to do with idols and false worship. Now, we, we read that and we say, gosh, how, in, in the face of all they've seen and all they've experienced, why would they turn to dumb idols? all we have to do is look in our own life. In the face of all we've seen, all we've read, all we know, and God says, don't, turn to idols. The question we have to ask ourselves, are there idols in our lives? Are there things that stand between me and God, that that I actually do put first above God? I can say, well, I believe in God, I, I believe in God, but I really want this, and this is where all my attention is focused. That's an idol. That's an idol. Rather than bring that item, that issue, that relationship, whatever it is, bringing it underneath, the Lord God is always first. So it might be a worthwhile experience this week to contemplate, Lord, show me, if, if, I'm, if I'm so dense, show me the idols in my life. Because there's always, always going to be a temptation to have idols in our life. That's just, that's just part of this life that we battle with. And so God reiterates that again and again and again and again to his people to not have idols and certainly not to engage in false worship. Verse 18, they were to celebrate the Passover. They were to keep the feast of unleavened bread. The whole point of that once a year was to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt. It's always a good thing to periodically look back and see where you've come from, isn't it? Thank God I'm not what I was. I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I was. God has done great things to deliver me. We celebrate God's deliverance by visiting the communion table, don't we? First weekend of every month, congregation, we take communion together. We remember Jesus. We remember his sacrifice, just like the Israelites remember the sacrifice of that lamb and the blood spread on the doorpost. Which guaranteed their freedom, we remember Jesus and his sacrifice that guarantees our freedom. Communion is available at every service every weekend. We have the two communion tables in the uh, in the auditorium here up in front, so when you come during any time during worship, feel free to come and take communion with you and your family. Uh, when you bring your offering, feel free to detour to the communion table and uh, take the elements back to your seat and receive communion and we We can Always remember him and remember what He has done, and, and God had stressed for Israel to also do that. Next, we find that God calls the people to uh, give him the firstborn. They were to give the firstborn to God. All the firstborn belonged to him. Verses nineteen and 20. You could redeem if your firstborn you had your firstborn sons, they were dedicated to the Lord, but you could redeem them we'll look more into that when we get into the book of Leviticus. The point of this is that, is that simply giving is important to God. It's an acknowledgement that he really does have first place in our hearts. Giving is important to him. It shows the true heart of a person. Jesus even addresses this, doesn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about giving, he says uh, "He says there's a connection between uh, uh, where our heart is and where our treasure is. If God really, he has our heart, our treasure will be directed towards the causes that he's interested in rather than other causes. So it's a very, very simple equation. Notice what God says uh, in that section. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Uh, when... Periodically my wife and I have an invitation to come to some of your homes for dinner and it's always a wonderful experience but we never go empty handed. We always bring flowers or some little gift, some little treasure that my wife has specially prepared for the hostess. But the point is God says when you come, don't come empty handed. Always bring a gift. Always bring a gift. In Proverbs chapter three, verse nine, uh, wisdom—this is wisdom literature. It's wisdom to honor the Lord with our wealth, with the first fruits of all of our crops. So, whatever the whatever the income might be, that we honor God and acknowledge His provision uh, by bringing a gift. In First Corinthians chapter sixteen, verse two. Paul instructs the Corinthian church. He says, on the first day of each week, what day would that be? Sunday, today. <laughs> on the first day of each week, each, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income for the offering. Now, that, there's a particular offering that Paul was taking at that juncture, but there's a principle for us. The offering was for the beleaguered saints in Jerusalem who were Jewish, from Jewish backgrounds, believers, who had become impoverished, persecuted for the faith. And so Paul, uh, seeking to kill a couple of birds with the same stone to uh, provide for their relief, and yet also uh, knit the hearts of Gentile and Jewish believers, goes to all the Gentile churches and says, we want to take up an offering for our Jewish brethren. Now you have to understand that the Jews typically despise Gentiles. They consider Gentiles dogs. And if you were a Gentile and you knew a Jewish person looked at you as a dog, you wouldn't exactly take kindly to that in return, would you? you say, oh, well, thank you very much for that compliment. I'm a dog. So there were, there were just natural animosities between Jews and Gentiles. And so now as believers, there should be healing and reconciliation in the face of that, right? What better way to do than to call the Gentiles and say, OK, uh, you're Jewish brothers. We're going to support them. We're going to meet their needs. Now, the Corinthians had agreed. They, they said, uh, OK, we're, count us in. We'll take up a great offering. And, but they never actually did it. <laughs> so Paul writes to them here, and he says, by the way, when I come to visit you, make sure the offering is taken. I don't want to have to do it when I get there. You set aside a sum of money. And the same principle holds true for us, that, that in the church, should we have to ask for an offering? What do you think? Should we have to say, "Please, let's take let's let's take an offering"? Can, can, we, can we? No, we should be so grateful that we bring an offering to the Lord for His kingdom, for the work that He's doing. Willingly, right? That's what the Bible teaches us. Uh, just look with me at Second Corinthians chapter nine, and Paul gives us uh, again some instructions, some principles about this. And again, it's curiously to the Corinthians. He says, remember this, don't forget this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows generously will also reap generously. In other words, he he sets down a principle. He says, this is the law of reciprocity. It works every time. God has designed life to function this way. If you give lots of smiles, what do you think you're going to get back in return? Yeah, lots of smiles. If you give lots of grief, what do you think you're going to get back in return? You're going to give lots of grief. So no matter what it, what it is, it, this law of reciprocity works every single time. So he says, remember that principle. Number 7, he says, each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Keeping that principle in mind, you give what you've decided to give. Not because you have to, not because you're under compulsion to do so. God wants our gifts to be what? our own free will gifts. He says, because God loves, what kind of a giver? giver. A hilarious giver. The, the Greek word actually is hilarion, from which we get the word hilarious. Not just cheerful. I, I wish they'd translated in English hilarious. God loves hilarious givers. Oh, <laughs> this is so exciting. I can hardly wait. Right? Can you imagine? I have yet to see people come down to the front hilariously. (laughs) Hilariously. And I watch. (laughs) Now look at verse 8. He says, Lest you be concerned, God is able, remember, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. In other words, God's going to provide everything. I don't think you can get a greater guarantee than that. Verse 21 tells us the people were to keep the Sabbath. They were to keep the Sabbath, I love this, even during the busiest season of their work. But it's the harvest. We've got to get the harvest in. We can't afford to take a day off. God says even during the busiest season of your work, you are to take a Sabbath. Ooh. I can't tell you how many Christians I've spoken to over the years who are workaholics, who work seven days a week, nonstop don't take a Sabbath. I'm constantly telling people, when is your Sabbath? When is your Sabbath? When do you take that day that God has given to pray and play? God has designed a certain rhythm to life. Six days we work, one day we rest, at least at minimum. Six days we work, one day we rest. And it's based on God's design. God worked six days and rested on the seventh. Now, do you suppose that God needed to rest? Did he get tired? He's, I've been working so hard. I I need a day off. I'm going to rest today. No, he did it to give us a design because he knew we would need to rest because we are fallible beings, weak beings, We need some time off. So even in the harvest, at the height of the harvest, God says, you take a Sabbath. Honor me. It's for our benefit. This is not some legalistic prescription. It's for our benefit. God wants us blessed. He wants our lives healthy. He wants to keep us in that rhythm of life he's designed. Next, the people were to keep and celebrate the religious feasts of weeks. The Feast of Pentecost, which would take place seven weeks after the Passover. They were to celebrate those feasts on a regular yearly basis. And verses 23 and 24 say a curious thing. Uh, All the men were to appear before the Lord three times a year. All the men were to appear. All the men were to come up and worship God in those three times. Religious feasts. The men were to take the lead in worshiping God on those feasts. Is there a lesson there for us? Yeah. That is a huge lesson. Men, God expects men to step up. God expects men to take the lead. God expects men to be the overseers of their family. God expects men to take the lead in his kingdom in his church. And we see that reflected in the Old Testament. Now, of course, this would create a problem. The problem would be that uh, this, this, this commitment on the part of the men to come up uh, and worship three times a year, and it wasn't just for, you know, a day. These feasts went on and on. Uh, it meant leaving behind their wives, their children, their property, their crops, their flocks, and exposing all of those to possibly uh, to assault by the ungodly neighbors. And so notice what God says. Notice God's promise. He would protect his people from their ungodly neighbors while they were worshiping him these three times a year. Verse 24. God says, come on up. I'll protect everything. I'll take care of everything for you. Come up and you worship me. Men, when we take our rightful place... In leading, in the worship of God, in honoring God, God does all the rest. It's much akin to what Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, he'll take care of everything else. It's not enough that our wives and mothers and women do it. It's imperative that the men step up. And I believe that there are more men stepping up, praying for their families, praying for their wives, leading their families in worship, Protecting their families, spiritually speaking, we'd have a lot less in terms of divorce in the church, a lot less broken families, a lot less kids in trouble, uh, because why they have a strong role model in a godly father, a godly husband. Men step up. Men step up, right? And when we do that, we just see marvelous things happen. Psalm 34, verse 7, really does say it all. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Wow, don't you love that? Psalm 91, a great, great psalm. I memorized this years ago, and and, uh, these verses have always really struck me. The last three verses of the psalm. And uh, this is, uh, to he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, the one who, God says, the one who loves me because he loves me, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What a promise, huh? What a promise. The bottom line is simply this. If, you're, if you've drifted away, if, 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 if your relationship with God is not what it ought to be, if you're experiencing... Troubles and and trials, emotional, personal, in your life. You can experience renewal. You can experience renewal. Three simple steps. Respond to his call. Know that he's calling you. He's not mad at you. He's not rejecting you. Respond to his call. And as you do so, seek him for all that he is. Not for what he does, for who he is. And as you do that... The third step in this renewal is that you, you renew your commitment to walk in his ways, to simply obey him. Yes, Lord. Because now obedience is not a grievous thing. Obedience is something that is exciting to do because it is the road to life. Jesus reminds us in Matthew's Gospel, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. How can we do the will of our Father if we don't know His will and if we don't know Him and have an appetite for the things of God that He gives us when we seek Him? Jesus says in John 14, uh, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Notice, the obedience emanates from love. It's, It's a product of seeking Him, and because I love Him, I, it's obvious I love him because I do what he says to do. I, I trust him. Again, any parent who who has children wants those kids to walk in the manner that the parent has deemed wise. Do what I say, it's gonna, because your life is going to be blessed. Does that make sense? And we want the kids to respond not out of so much duty. We want them to respond out of the function of relationship because... They know that we love them, and they love us back. I love you so much, I want to do what you want me to do. I will do what you want me to do. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Uh, Just like Moses said, God, show me your glory. We want to see Jesus more clearly, do we not? Maybe not physically, tangibly, materially, but you want to see Jesus, you want to know him, you want to understand him, and the only way to do that is by loving him and following in his ways. And all of a sudden you discover new things about his grace and his love uh, as you walk in his ways, as you obey him. Verse 23 of John 14, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Isn't that marvelous? We'll make our home with him. And lastly, 1 John chapter 5, John writes this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his, his commands are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. It's a delight. It's a delight. I would, i, I, I always delighted when my son would tell, tell his mom, yes, mom. Yes, Mom, it's my delight to do your will. Would that bless a father's heart to hear that? Yes, Mom? Yes, Lord, I love you so much. I want to do what you want. You want to know that you want to be on that road to renewal? Respond to his call. Seek him and obey his commands. Amen? Father, we do love you today and we're thankful for your abundant grace. Thank you for your instruction. Thank you, Lord, for the truth and the the principles you reveal to us in your word. Strengthen us, O God, for your purposes. Lord, give us an insatiable appetite for your word to read it every day, to learn it, to know you more intimately. Lord, to know your grace more substantially. And Lord, as a result, that our lives bring you glory. Thank you. We love you this morning, Father. We love your word. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. Lead us in how we should go. Turn our hearts more fully to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor give him a holy hug and pronounce a blessing on that person, would you? Let's stand and sing his praises one more time before we dismiss.